Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. So today, I'm I'm actually kind of starstruck because I have um, M. William Phelps on my podcast. And this is a big deal for me. And this is kind of funny because this is how I came across this man. I am addicted to forensic files. And as I ride my Peloton, I watch forensic files. So on two forensic files, I have seen this guy. And so I looked and I saw that he wrote this book and I was interested because I'm thinking this is, you know, this is what he does. He writes about, about crime. So I actually have the email that I wrote to you. I just asked you to be on my podcast. I said, I was intrigued by your writing and I saw you on television. That was on November 9th, the 19th. And since then I have read five books. I have listened to all the paper ghosts. I am very deep into dark minds. I am on to another book and I have notes and papers and copies of all your things. So I think maybe I've become a little obsessed. So first of all, thank you and welcome to my show. Well, thank you, Sarah. I mean, call me Matthew, my first name, and I'm, geez, I'm humbled by all of that. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm so humbled by that. So I, your writing is great and I have barely touched the surface because you have written over 40 books, you are on TV, you have your own television show, you have your own podcast show, you're a big deal in true crime, big deal. Uh, Thank you. Um, Well, I've been in it for 20 years now, so everything's starting to... uh, kind of, there's a confluence of everything coming together for me. So I've been working hard at it for a long time. So some people will know your background. Some people don't. So how did you get into true crime? How did I get into true crime? Well, you know, the day before I got into true crime, I didn't know I was getting into true crime. I mean, I, I was just chasing really interesting stories for me that I thought were interesting to me about people. You know, I like to write about people. I like to look at their lives uh, as it is affected by tragedy and what happens. Because in my my world, in my life, you know, there's been lots of tragedy. And and so, and and one of those that I guess would equate to crime is uh, my sister-in-law was murdered and it's unsolved case. So I kind of, I kind of know what families go through in that instance. So I was looking to write about how families responded to tragedy. Uh, I was especially interested in missing person cases, unsolved murders, that sort of thing. So I hooked up with a guy, um, his name is William Acosta. And in the, in, the, in the late 90s, I hooked up with a guy, I wanted to interview him and write like a major magazine piece about him. That's how I wanted to break out. You know, I wanted my dream or fantasy was to write uh, an article for like New York magazine, the New York or something like that on this guy. Cause this guy was like a, he was in the CIA, uh, CIA, FBI, NYPD, CID customs. And 
he, a Colombian guy, and he rooted out corruption and he found all kinds of different crimes within those agencies. So he was a very interesting character and people were after him to kill him, etc. So I called him up and I interviewed him, went down to New York where he is in his office. Uh, he's called The Equalizer. Uh, he had a private investigation firm at that time. And I started interviewing him for the day and I'm like, wow, this is probably a book, not an article. So I just started to go back to New York for a couple of years and interview him. And um, that never became the book that I uh, had envisioned. It was called The Blue Mafia, Racism and Corruption Inside the NYPD. And um, what happened was September 11th hit and there's just, there was just no way I could sell that book because the NYPD were like heroes, you know? Um, so, but we became friends and he taught me how to investigate people. So I was kind of a journalist when I met him and then an investigative journalist after I left him. Hmm. So being an investigative journalist, is that difficult in your personal relationships? Do people feel like you're interrogating them or no? They do on match dates. (laughs) (laughs) I think everyone probably would feel interrogated then and they should. (laughs) Well, you know, here's the thing. When, when, when you've done what I've done for 20 years, it's just a natural part of who you are. You know, when I'm with friends, family, match dates, I don't interrogate people. I, I just, you know, I'm just, I like to say I'm Matthew. And when I'm out in the world as an investigative journalist, I'm M. William Phelps. I'm that guy, you know? So mm-hmm. there is a there is a definite disassociation between the two. Well, you're pretty fortunate that you... You have the voice for this, too, because when you're listening to Dark Minds or or Paper Ghosts um, or even on Forensic Files, you have that kind of mysterious uh, tone to your voice. So as I was watching one day, I thought, man, this is this worked out really well for him. Not only does he have like the brains and the and the ability to write like this, but then he has this voice. So you were I guess you were just blessed, huh? Uh, I, I guess. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you. Yeah, I just try to be myself. and. Uh, you know, I, I wrote about this in one epilogue to one book. I don't know which book it was, but you know, I wrote about the idea of being a objective journalist. I mean, that's really, you can't be, right? I mean, you can't be totally objective. You're always going to bring in who you are, what you believe, etc. cetera. Uh, and I've had, I guess my brand is known for, and I'm known for just speaking the truth, you know, how I feel. If I feel someone's guilty and I have the evidence, you know, I'm going to go at them. I'm not going to dance around the issue. I give everybody the benefit of the doubt of the truth. And, you know, I see where it shakes out, you know. Mm -hmm. And now the one that I've read that I've seen you, I think, very impartial is targeted. Because in my mind, obviously, I don't have near the background you do. But I have tried so hard to come up with a different explanation for what could have happened and you just kind of, you kind of just hit a roadblock. Yeah, I mean, I did too. Uh, you know, and I wrote about that in that book. You know, I wrote about how, you know, okay, I'm open to all of this. I'm open to the framing, the cover-up, the planting evidence. I'm open to all of that. Because it happens. Because it happens. And but, but the thing is, I hear it over and over and over and over and over again. You know, I, I've never met anybody uh, guilty in prison. You know, uh, you know, so... So when I hear that, you know, a red flag goes up. 
Uh, at the same time, with this case, I really wanted to. Di- I really wanted to believe it. I, I wanted to. Yeah. Um, and you know, every time I turn around, there's a few things you just can't ignore. You mm-hmm. just cannot ignore. And I should say, since that book was published, you know, I found out a couple other things that just solidify the whole thing for me. That she's guilty. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. Really, really important things. Yeah. Okay. Well, that I mean, that's good because I had even posed the question on the Facebook fan page of your uh, fan page on Facebook, asking what other people thought, like what could have been the other alternative. And I didn't see anyone right on there. So I'm just thinking everyone didn't think that there was an alternative. Yeah. I mean, her explanation doesn't hold water. You know, no pun intended with the horse drop. <laughs> Right, exactly. So in that book, um, I made a photocopy of this because I wanted to ask because I wanted to see what you what you found out this was. What was that list they found inside Doug's trailer? And okay, what do you suppose this list is? Not sure. Far as they could tell, all the names on it were male. Did you ever find out what that list was? No, I could get never get an explanation for that. The the only thing I could think of that list makes sense is that those were people on her shit list. You know, that it's like mm-hmm. you know, why is that list there? You know, I don't have a list in my kitchen or my living room like that. <laughs> no. You know? you know, I always look at things that way. Uh for example, uh in the podcast in Paper Ghost, you know, the the witness moves up to Maine. And there's a very important comment from uh, one of the uh, detectives that he tells me. So the, the witness moves up to Maine in the podcast, my chief suspect, if you will, for, for listeners, moves up to Maine. And within a couple of years, there's a missing girl two miles away. And then there's a dead girl found like two miles away in the woods. So the a detective simply says to me, he says, I don't know about you, Phelps, but when I move, dead girls don't follow me around. Yeah. So, you know, the same. I don't have a hit list in my house <laughs> of people that I'm, you know, looking to get back at or whatever, you know. So you got to take those things into consideration when you're looking at everything. You know, are they are they evidence? Well, yeah, it's circumstantial, but, you know, that stuff adds up. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The very first book of yours I read was Death Trap. Oh, and that was a good one. So I just, I got as many books I could as from local libraries. So I just kind of let the chips fall where they may timeline wise. Okay. So Death Trap, you wrote in 2010. I had a hard time with that one. <laughs> and the reason I have a hard time is because I'm a parent and I, I just can't imagine being so selfish that you will take away the other parent. Like it absolutely blows my mind. So I'm reading this book and then I kind of set it down and I go back and reread it because I'm thinking, are you serious? Like this lady was, she was literally crazy. You know, you, okay. You make a good point. So you look at that and you say, how could someone do that to their kids and to their ex? And with death trap, you know, we have a, a custody situation and a visitation situation that turns deadly, if you will, mm-hmm. just for a little synopsis. But, but what's important about this that you have to really look at is the behaviors. One of the behaviors that's very telling is this. So her ex-husband would have visitations on Friday night, say, from 6 until Sunday night at 6. 
she would put the kids out on the front steps with their luggage on Thursday night at six and make them wait, 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 and say, look, I told you he's not coming. He doesn't care. Come back in. So when you look at that behavior, that's a sociopath. So you said something, you said something very important that I, I try to point out all the time. And, and it's this, you, you said something to the effect of what's going on here. And this lady's crazy. Well, I think the general public doesn't really get a sociopath's uh, psychopath, how they look at the world. They look at the world totally different, right? So, yeah. so they don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to have coffee, read the paper, you know, get dressed and, you know, you know, they wake up thinking, you know, who am I going to fuck over today? You know, especially if you're a sociopath, you know, we see sociopaths a lot as CEOs. We see them as, as politicians. Of course, we see them, we see them all in those jobs where you have to stomp on people to get to the top. Right. Because generally speaking, you and I, we're not sociopaths. We, we can't do that. Right. Our, our, our soul, our, you know, our conscious won't allow us to do that. So when you don't have that conscience, you can do anything and it doesn't bother you. Which is wild. And to think that her second husband, he, he seriously, that was just by chance that he ran into her. He could have met a school teacher who, you know, um, had three foster kids and had he met her, he would have been the obedient husband to her and his life would have just been very mundane. But instead he basically danced with the devil. Yeah. He marry he marries the devil and he becomes her puppet. He becomes a person who is willing to do anything. The ultimate he's willing to do anything at it. What's what, what was as shocking to me was at the drop of a hat. It, it didn't take a lot of convincing. No. And, you know, uh, I, I interviewed him from prison and I write about some of those letters and everybody I talked to about that guy was just like, he was just like this guy. I was like, yep. All right. Okay. No problem. All right. I'll go along with it. And it's like, there's people out there like that, you know, and, and, and getting back to the sociopath, the, they know how to choose those people and how to exploit those people. You know, they can go in a room, sociopath can go in a room and pick out that vulnerable person with the V on their head. Bang. That's the person I'm going to choose. I'm going to exploit and I'm going to ma manipulate, you know, to the max. And they just, they have that gift, I guess. Which is crazy. And granted, I'm not just trying to blame insecurity on his part because there's no fiber of me. Let's say I were to meet someone, there's zero fiber of me that someone could talk me into something like that. You just can't. And so as I'm reading and reading and reading, I will stop reading and I will tell my husband, I, if you ever were to love someone else, I don't like, it's fine. Like my life will go on. Your life will go on. You don't, you know, and he's looking at me like, why, why are you talking like this? I'm like, because some people think that they literally have to kill someone to move on with their lives. It's so mind boggling. And so then some of my patients and, and some of my friends, they think it's kind of funny, like how into this true crime I am, it couldn't be farther from my life. Right. So this is like my escape. 
And it's fascinating to me how people think, just how, how differently they think. I mean, and not just sociopaths or narcissists or whatever, like anyone. It's, it's, it's interesting to me to have a conversation with anyone. And that's why I do the podcast, because I like to learn more about people. But it seriously takes all kinds. Like, I, and the people you find, I mean, you, you couldn't make this up. I could not make it up. I mean, I am working on season two now of the podcast, Paper Ghost, which is a totally different case. And, you know, I'm looking at this case and I'm saying, geez, I mean, I, I knew it was, I knew it was this, but oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And, you know, you mentioned something about spouses killing spouses. And in Paper Ghost season one, there's that one detective, John Collins, who says, look, if we were to go after the husband, every time we come up with a wife who's murdered, we're going to have almost 100 percent batting average. You know, um, we're, we're going to have a and it's true. It's I mean, even any murder in general. So any murder in general, if if the victim is the bullseye, the first ring around the bullseye is everyone that person knows because it's so, so rare mm -hmm. that you're murdered by someone you do not know or have a connection to. And that's where serial killing comes into play. You know, serial killers murder people they have no connection to. Uh, whereas every other, every other one-off murder is basically, uh, it's tied to somebody. It just, mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's, there's only three motives for murder. Only three. Love, money, revenge. And under those three, you know, an umbrella, you could put, you know, in money, you could put a gang hit. They owed us money for drugs, uh, insurance claim, you know, so uh, there's only love, money, revenge. And, and that's what detectives focus on. You know, they focus on a motive. Really, you find a motive, you're going to find the murderer, generally speaking. I kind of, I know I'm going back and forth and back and forth, but there's so many things that I want to, I want to say. So for all the books that I've read so far of yours, I haven't seen anyone that has had remorse. No, there's only one murderer that I interviewed that I've written about in 40 something books that had remorse. And that was Dawn Silvernail in a book called Deadly Secrets, a case in Poughkeepsie, New York. And she did her 18 years and she's out. No, she shot a woman uh, eight times in the parking lot of a church after the woman got out of choir practice. Oh, I saw that one on Forensic Files. That's it. It was on Forensic Files. Yeah. Yeah, we did it. We did it. <laughs> See, I'm a nerd. <laughs> Dawn was the only murderer that I interviewed that she says, yes. Matt, Matt, I have nightmares every single night about this. I am so sorry. Uh, she was remorseful. I mean, um, uh, she was taken in under the spell of a, uh, you know, manipulator. Right. I and mean, she was threatened, though, wasn't she, by him? Well, you know, that's another thing. You know, he was showing her, like, long lens photographs of her son. And he would uh, he would put those on a table and say, Don, listen, if, if, if you do not do what I'm telling you, he's going to die. Your son's going to die. I mean, there's nothing I can do about this. So she's, you know, literally under the gun you know, to commit this murder. And she, she did it. She did it, you know? Wow. And again, you know, here we have a, an affair, uh, one of those love triangle things, you know, yeah. it's, it's, you know, which seemed to work out real well for people. 
<laughs> they always do, don't they? <laughs> Everyone's always happy and no one ever knows what's going yeah. on. There's always a happily ever after in those, <laughs> right? There is. People do strange things, as we know. Yeah. And, and have you read Obsessed? No. Okay. Put that one on your list because there's some strange stuff that the husband does in that that you would think, that you would think, gee, why did he do that? Um, they play a game where he's tied up to a chair and he's got a blindfold on and the game is, you know, she rubs uh, a, a remote or the phone and he's got to guess what it is. And then she, gets, she goes into the chair the, 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 and then all of a sudden he's in the chair, he's blindfolded and she stabs him and he yes. doesn't realize she's stabbed. So, so there's games that people play. And, and I asked him, you know, Jesus, why did you play that game? And he's like, look, we hadn't had sex in months. And this was like an opportunity for me, me maybe to get her into the bedroom, my wife into the bedroom and rekindle that part of our lives because we weren't getting along. And I, I thought this was a way into the bedroom. That's all. Mm-hmm. And I, said, I get it. I get it, man. You know, I don't live your life. You know, I don't live your life. So I don't know what's going on. And, and, and Sarah, you know, there's odd things going on in houses all, all around that we never hear about because they don't end in murder or, you know, we don't, you know, so yeah, people push the bar today. They really do. They really push the bar with everything, which is disgusting to me, but you know, it's not to them. Right. And I have not read that book, but I was searching for podcasts with you and one lady had read the book. So she gave a synopsis of it. So naturally we went out to dinner with friends last week. So I had to give them the synopsis of it. And, um, I was saying how he had to pack his stuff up every weekend and leave. And my husband, first of all, he goes, first of all, there's no freaking way I would ever pack my shit up. That's just something your brother's going to have to deal with. And I was like, okay. I mean, that was a good point. Like to get him to do that was very interesting. Well, one of the reasons, and again, that's a question I asked because I yes. said, you know, I can't see myself doing that. Paul, his name is Paul Christoph. I can't see myself doing that. He says, well, let's put yourself in my position. I am studying for my doctorate. I'm about to take the, the exam to be a doctor, to be an epidemiologist. And I am immersed in studying for this final. And believe me, an opportunity to leave that house and go to a hotel and not have her over my back for the weekend to study was Mm. like very inviting. And he said it wasn't a big thing about the brother because I had never met him. And I knew he was violent. I knew, according to her, he was mentally very, very severely mentally ill, schizophrenic. Could be a big guy. And, um, you know, I was just kind of catering to what she wanted. And for listeners, you know, the punchline is he did all that. So he helped her clean the house of their life, marriage, everything. And he went to a hotel to study on Friday and came back Monday morning or Sunday night. And while he was gone, she had her lover over for the weekend in their bed. It's just wild. Like I, you, like I said, you just cannot make it up. So yes, it's on my, on my list of things. And I, the reason I say that people still need to read these books, because this is what I'm bad at. So I get one of your books and then I read, you know, we got pictures in there. So I got to start looking at the pictures just to see, because you know, every, I'm obviously a visual person. So then I try not to get to where they say, 
where you say like who did them, you know, like so-and-so was arrested or so-and-so murdered, whatever. So I really try not to do that. But then I figured, well, does it really matter? Like, does it matter if I know who the murderer is? Because that's not the end of the book. Because like the one that I just finished, which is Never See Them Again, that took years to solve. And there was so many ups and downs in that. And then different players coming in. And I don't know, like, I, I really, really wish that they would have been able to get to the guy who took overdosed on the pills, because I really would have liked to hear his side of that story. Chris Schneider. Yes. Yeah, I, I really wish that too. And I interviewed his sister, Brandy. And yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I wrestled with that, with how I felt about him. Because obviously from an early age, he was, there was something wrong with him. And the fact that he took his life leaves a lot of questions unanswered. But it gave her the out of, he did it. I, I had nothing to do. I mean, you know, I, I, I had nothing to do with any of this. I was, you know, I, she, it gave her the opportunity to play the innocent Patty Hearst type of victim you know, uh, Stockholm syndrome victim, uh, which she definitely was not. Mm -hmm. She definitely was not. I mean, Chris Schneider had no reason to go in there, open fire and kill four people. Mm -hmm. He wasn't that type of guy. He was the type of guy who might maybe brought a knife and a gun and said, Hey, I want all your drugs and all your money, Mm -hmm. you know, but he wasn't the type of guy to follow through and kill somebody for it. Uh, She had a lot of issues. She had lots of issues. And I always tried to put my finger on the pulse of where it went wrong for her with those two girls, but I couldn't find that answer. It bothered me. There was something there with her that really flipped the switch, uh, made her just despise those two girls for some reason. And part of it is, well, you're leaving me. You're going off on your own. Because they did tell her, look, you're still in high school. You got one more year. We're out. We're adults. We're living our lives. You know, you need to leave us alone now. So part of it was that, uh, but is that enough to, you know, take four lives? <laughs> I, I would assume no, but yeah. Yeah. but with him, I was, I read a couple times you had described his drawings. And so I read through those a couple times, just trying, trying to visualize that. And wow. I mean, the, the guy had definite demons in his head, but you'd, you'd think almost if you had the demons to kill four people like he supposedly planned, you wouldn't have stopped with four people after looking at those pictures. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And you wouldn't have killed yourself when the police started closing in on you. Right. You know, you would fight that to the end. You would do a suicide by cop. That's, yeah. that's some behavior you might participate in. You wouldn't go alone like a, like a wounded animal into the woods, you know, and, and take your life. That's not something you would do. Um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, he was, he was definitely a challenge for me. I wish I knew a lot more about him in his early life, but those reports just weren't there, psychological reports, you know? So we're left with those drawings and, you know, interviews with his family and friends and yeah, just a, wow. Yeah. Horrific story. Horrific mm-hmm. story. Okay. And, and a big investigation, long investigation by a really smart cop, Brian Harris, Detective Brian Harris. I mean, he he really followed that thing down every rabbit hole. And they had a lot of them. <laughs> they had someone admit to it, right? They had a guy in Florida admit to it. 
That's insane. They checked him out. He was in the area. He was a known gang member, drug dealer, all of this, hit guy. He was in jail for murder in Florida. And he admits to it. But come to find out, he only admitted to it because he's doing life anyway. And he wanted to do life not in Florida, but in Texas, so he could be closer to his family. Wow. So you're going to admit to killing four people for that. That's wild. Okay, so here's another one. I really wasn't planning on going through all these books with you, but when in Rome, Mm -hmm. I don't know the next time I will will have you via Zoom. So, okay, Where Monsters Hide. That was my second book I read. I started that right after Death Trap. Obviously, they are seasoned at this if they are able to dispose of that body and not have a drop of blood, like in that basement. And they created a Dexter room. Big time. Yep. Yep. And um, now to look at the the mental, I don't know, deviation of that. Again, yeah, you have these pictures in the book, and I'm think, I'm not going to read anything under them, you know, because I don't want to give anything away. But you have pictures in there about how um, everyone was positioned, like when he was shot, and I couldn't figure it out because I didn't read. I didn't, you know, read the picture. I'm like, what's going? Why? What? Uh, this must be wrong. Like I couldn't figure it out. Well, then you read it. You just have to, I, I don't, I just don't get it. I'm not supposed to get it. It's super entertaining to me, but I'm just not supposed to understand, but they kill the guy and then no one can even find his body and they just go about everyday life. Like nothing has happened. Yeah. And, and the reason for that is because they had done it several times before. That's definitely my belief. Together. Or do you, who is the mastermind you think behind this? Oh, uh, the wife. Without well, that's a, what I thought. But for him, he he was a he was a stooge, a puppet. Uh, you, he'd do whatever she told him. Absolutely, because if you look at some of my interviews with her, you know she studies psychology at the University of Tennessee. I'm sorry, at Drexel, maybe at Drexel, and then goes to the University of Tennessee to study the body farm, William right. Bass's body farm. And she does all of this. I ask her, why do you do all this? And she says, well, why do you think? Why do you think? You know, she wanted to be the best psychological, experienced killer imaginable. She wanted to cover every base. And yeah, wow, what a story that is, Where Monsters Hide. Just, again, incredible police work on part of the, you know, the chief of police, Laura Frizzo. And there's a love story in it, which I loved. I was just going to say that. There's like a little which cherry I on top. Which I, I just loved that part of it. it. It felt like there was some redemption from all of this. It just felt like through all of the pain, there was some there was some light there of those two meeting, which they would have not had otherwise, without a doubt, because right. they were in different states and falling in love and ultimately getting married. I mean, so... Yeah, and they're still friends to this day, uh, those two. Uh, and yeah, great cops. I mean, just they did everything right. And Laura Frizzle faced, you know, the male chauvinist world of, ah, you're a woman. You know, just forget about this case. You, you got it all wrong. It's all, you got it all wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's the one who had it all right. Everyone believed it was a suicide. Guy goes missing, his car's found in a commuter park a lot. Yeah, he killed himself, you know, and and Laura Frizzo is 
No, he didn't. No, he did not. You know? Um, so yeah, that, you know, but I have to, I have to share a story with you, uh, about writing that. So I'm writing that and, um, so I get to this part, I, I get these interviews with the neighbors, the two killers, they have neighbors across the street who are brothers. And I get to an interview where I think it was Laura Frizzo is interviewing these two. And as she's interviewing, I'm looking at this interview and they all figure out together at the time of the interview, what happened to the victim. And they look at, they kind of look at each other and they say, oh my God, we ate that fucking guy. <laughs> we ate that guy. And it, was the, and it was the part where, it was the part where one brother says to the other brother and the detective, he says, you know, weirdest thing. They never invited us over for dinner or barbecue. But the week after, and he starts slowing down as he's talking, they invited <laughs> us over three times. And they had all this meat in the freezer and we had chili. We had a pizza with like more meat on it than you could imagine and tacos. And they were like, oh my God, oh my God. You know, so uh, that was one of those holy shit moments when you're working on a, a, a story, a book. And it's not funny, but I am, la I can't imagine. Like, it is, it's it, just so funny. Yeah, you you, keep, you you have to you have to laugh at that, or or you'll just be consumed by how dark it is. It's funny to me how they realize, you know, what oh. I mean? like they maybe would have gone their whole lives without knowing, and then you're talking to them, and all of a sudden, you know, yeah. that's the funny part about it. They they maybe never would have known. They never would have. They never would have known unless they were interviewed. Yeah, that they ate him. So wow. I, I wonder if that was something that they did a lot of. If, if this was something that they did? I, you know, looking at it, I mean, my my guess as a crime guy and look, looking at tons of cases is they escalated to that because it's it's clear that going into this, other people they murdered, they had a pig farm and they fed those victims okay. to the pig, the pigs, and then they sold the pork. So the, it, it was kind of an escalation, I think, an escalation. You know, I'm just glad that the husband didn't carry out his ultimate plan because his ultimate plan he was looking at and he was studying was to poison the water supply. Mm -hmm. That's what he wanted to do. He never did that, thankfully. So since she killed him, do you think that he knew that was coming? Do you think she said it was a game or something sexual or, you know, or he I was think, just too high and she did it? I think she looked him in the eye and said, motherfucker, you're my next victim. And, and, and overdosed them. Absolutely. Because that's the kind of person she is. She's a, she's a very devious textbook psychopath, that woman. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, she you she, she, I, I want to say one more thing about her. She thinks she's special. And when I interviewed her, I interviewed her on Skype. And, you know, she thinks she's special. She thinks she's a cut above every other serial killer, psychopath, all that. But when you interview her, and you look at her on paper, she's textbook. She's nobody special. She's a textbook psychopath slash serial killer. That's who she is. Did you ever say that to her, that you're textbook? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I push back on her a lot. I mean, she's hitting on me. First, we get on there and she's hitting on me. Yeah. She, we get on Skype and she goes, oh, yeah, 
you're you're good looking, Phelps. I didn't realize how. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's trying to work me right away. Yeah. You know? And I started pushing back on some of the stuff she was saying because I said, I said, Kelly. So she had 19 butterfly tattoos on her arms when she went to prison. And, you know, the theory has always been her. She got a butterfly tattoo for each victim. But when I spoke to her, she had three more butterflies. And I said, Kelly, why three more? And she goes, well, why do you think? And I said, Kelly, why don't you give me a straight answer? You know, don't don't answer my question with a question. You know, mm-hmm. give me a straight mm-hmm. answer. I'd love to give you a straight answer, but you know, the, the cops come in here, we're discussing some stuff, and yeah, you know, so there's always a reason, you know. She always had an excuse. So my I saw their wedding picture. I want to bring that up. Did she have any I saw that she had tattoos at their wedding? Did she have any butterflies at their wedding? There's a wedding. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, she did. Yeah. Yeah. And the butterflies, you know, I asked her with the significance of the butterfly during my interview. I said, what's the significance of the butterfly? And she goes, well, most people think on dead bodies, corpses that blow flies, you know, she she says, no, butterflies love dead bodies. And I saw that at the body farm. And she says, I became fascinated with butterflies after that. Huh. Well, that's interesting. So, yeah. So. I wonder if that's something he knew before they got married or, and here's another thing you should, you're not supposed to look at someone and, and judge them. Right. Right. But sometimes it's, it's maybe hard not to, but when I look at the photos of Chris Reagan and I look at the pictures of her. Yeah. They don't make, they don't make a, yeah, it, they, it's an odd couple, right? It's an odd couple. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, it surprised me. Because, I mean, he was athletic and, you know, you got pictures of him on a bike and in the woods and whatever. Like, I would have thought he'd been more attracted to someone who maybe looked like, you know, Laura Frizzo or, you know, someone. But, you know, so it was just an odd match for me. And I and when I was reading the book, I kept thinking, why did you get involved in this? Like, how did how did this even happen for you? I, you know, I, I, I think for him, it was just excitement. It was excitement. His last girlfriend was kind of mm, hiking, um, cook. Uh, you know, sure. a housewife type of, you know, nice right. uh, woman, beautiful woman, nonetheless. And I just think it was exciting for him to meet this girl with uh, this woman with tattoos and kind of a, a brute of a girl who could toss him around and tell him what to do. And it was exciting for him, I think. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, guys, they think you know, they think different. We guys think different sometimes. <laughs> That's the only explanation I'm going to take there. No. <laughs> okay, so let's run to Dark Minds quick. Every now and then, a serial rapist will call his victim, but he doesn't, they don't always call their victims, right? It's just every now and then. What's, what do you think is behind that? Do you think he calls the ones that he kind of thinks that he maybe messed up on or she would have seen him or maybe he left more clues with that one and that's why he specifically only calls certain ones because he thinks maybe they're going to remember more? What's the, what's the deal there? Yeah, I think that's right. But I, I also wrote another book about a serial rapist called uh, Jane Doe No More that involved a serial rapist. So I did some research yet many years ago about that. And what I discovered with serial rapists is they become really obsessed with their victims a lot of times, you know, um, certain victims. So they become obsessed to the point where they don't necessarily want to take a chance and rape them again, but they want to mess with them. You know, it's, it's, 
it all leads to the power and control of the whole thing, right? If I call you and threaten you, I'm keeping you down, right? I'm keeping you down. If I call you and leave you a cryptic message, I'm keeping you down. I'm holding you down. I'm controlling you. So it's all because rape, as we know, uh, the cliche is it's not about sex. It's about the power and the control. That's what they crave, that power and control to your mind, nobody else's. I can do whatever I want, power and control. So that, that the, the whole phone call thing is, is about that. The whole teacup thing is extremely bothersome, too. They, and the, you're talking about the original Night Stalker when uh, Golden State Killer, when he was just a rapist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Bizarre stuff with him. He, 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 what can I say about him that hasn't been said? When you look at the methodical madness of putting pots and pans and teacups and all of this stuff on people, uh, again, it's about the power of control. Also, and I interviewed some of those rape victims for uh, Dark Minds, and I, I interviewed even more that weren't on, on the show. And I really believe with, for him it was about the whole sexual frustration of not being able to perform, right? Um, being, how should I say? not well-endowed, the opposite of well-endowed, right? So for him, it was all of that's playing in his mind, right? And, you know, who knows? Who knows? One thing I found interesting is it was always thought that he was on the edge of the bed in one of those rapes in another room after the rape, and he was saying, I'm so sorry, mommy. I'm so sorry, mommy. I think we did that in Dark Minds. I think we depicted that in a reenactment. So sorry, mommy. That's what the victim heard him saying. However, fast forward to catching the original uh, Night Stalker, Golden State Killer, and we learned that his ex-wife's name was Molly. Mm. So was he saying Molly or mommy? So, uh, you know, when we, when I look at him, I see a, a guy who was very smart at what he did. Um, and I see a guy who just a bonafide psychopath. Yes. But more than that, he thrived the power, the control, and then the cat and mouse, the cat and mouse with the cops. He thrived on that stuff. And, and, and a psychopath needs constant stimulation. Really? They need stimulation all the time of some sort. Um, it, it keeps them uh, in a good place. So this guy needed constant, constant simulation going on around him. And and to feed that was, you know, the notes showing up at the town halls, you know, the all of this stuff, you know, uh, riding a bike. He just calling his victims, you know. So he just thrived on that power and control, you know. Um, you know, I, I I hate to say that about every person we're talking about, but when you look at these people, you know, that's what you see, you know, that's what you see. Mm-hmm. And you have a book that talks about your friendship with a serial killer. And I have that on my nightstand and I have picked it up three times. I never, by the way, read the back of any of the books. I never know anything about the book before I start it because 
I know I'm going to like it. And um, I just like to see where it takes me. Okay. Um, But I know what this book is about and I can't read it yet. And I don't know why, but I think it may be because I heard you say in a podcast once how you kind of got in your head and it was, you know, you'd wake up at night and, you know, you'd think about some of that stuff and just looking at it at at a relationship level, like what you seriously had to deal with. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not ready for that yet. Cause that seems like that was, that's really going to be a personal book. Yeah. A large part of that book is memoir about my life, how I got into the crime, uh, the, how, how, um, you know, to be honest, Sarah, that book broke me writing that book. It, it broke me. It was the worst period of my life. Uh, as I wrote that book, handed it in and then had to edit it and reread it and visit, revisit my childhood and, it broke me and him, dealing with him. I mean, uh, I'll just, you know, y- your listeners can't see this, but I will just show you uh, recent phone calls. You know, there's two on there from him today. Today? Today. You know, he still calls me relentlessly. And it, it was just that book, writing that book. I never planned on writing that book. It was something that was born out of the material that I have. This, this, this room next to me is just full of 9,000 pages of letters from him. 9,000 pages. What? Uh, uh, artwork, cassette tapes of interviews. I mean, I have digital hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of interviews with him. I have Skype video interviews with him. And... It, it was a confluence of things. It was revisiting my childhood and my life and thinking that I had worked through all of that. But it's different working through all of that in an office building with a professional and then sitting down and writing it and having it staring back at you. So, because you're figuring out things as you write, you, fi- as you write, you figure stuff out. So you figure, I'm figuring out new stuff. And then I had to write about my sister-in-law's murder, my brother, my brother's death after her murder. The kids being left alone, my brother and, and her kids being, you know, left with us. And then dealing with him and then dealing with issues, personal issues going on in my life. It just, I was broken. I was broken. I was a broken human being. Um, and actually, I just wrapped filming a documentary for Oxygen uh, about that book, a two-hour special called uh, Notorious, The Happy Face Killer. So... We're going to talk about how it all happened. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So there's a lot of pain in that book, but there's also a lot of healing in that book. You'll see, but there's, there's a ton of my pain in that. Mm-hmm. So enjoy my pain. Yeah. Well, and that's maybe why I haven't read it yet. I'm, it's much easier to maybe be objective when you're reading about a crime, but, and and I will get to it and, I'm sure you won't care, but I'll let you know what I think. <laughs> yeah, send me an email, please. I would yeah. really love to know what you think. I really would. Do you think that he now looks at you as a friend, or do you think he likes to tell you this because he's so proud of what he's done and it's like a bragging right, or maybe both? Oh, you make a good point. I think it's a bragging right to him. I'm his friend. And, you know, what pissed me off about the publication of that book was they didn't put friend in quotes on the cover, you know? Mm-hmm. It should have been in quotes because I'm not his fucking friend. I let my guard down every so often as I write in that book and I would, mm-hmm. I would let out a personal thing because we talk so much, but 
every time I got on that phone, I was M. William Phelps. I was never Matthew, you know? Mm-hmm. And But then you'd say something like, I got to go because my daughter has a volleyball game or something. And then he's asking you about it next time you talk. So you read that part. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I listened to it on a podcast. You, so, it was so, so, yep. so there's a slip every so often. And, yeah. and that's what the psychopath focuses on is looking for that one. Or as a friend said, a psycho, forensic psychologist, you know, the devil looks for just a crack in the window. Yeah. And boom, he's in. Yeah, it was a week later, I think, he calls, and I, he calls, and I, the first thing he says when I pick up, how that volleyball came, uh, turn out uh, of your daughter's, and I said, dude, do not talk about my daughter. Do not. Mm-hmm. You know, you, know you, you do not go there. But that gave him a button. Mm-hmm. Gave him a button. What I think about that is, think of how he is, did you call him a psychopath or a sociopath? What, what did you call him? psychopath okay so he's a psychopath but yet he's good at that and but yet you have a sincere person like if you had a friend that you just met and then you see them or whatever and they ask you the same thing you're thinking that was so nice that she remembered that so it's kind of funny it's really a a, great point so it's such a sheep and you know it's a sheep and a wolf in sheep's clothing yeah what a great point you just made it's like they're the polar opposites yet they're the same it's like Yeah, it's like you're right. If if a friend asks you that, or a girl, you you know you're you're just meeting, you're like, wow, that person really cares about me. Yep. You know, and yet he does it, and you, it's for a totally different reason. Yep. You know, yeah, that's that. So you get it. That's 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 the point I, I'm trying to make with some of what's written in that book is the public sees a serial killer in a clown suit. They see Ted Bundy. They see the Green River Killer. They see the Golden State Killer. And they, they, they see the Happy Face Killer, for, for all intents and purposes. And they think that that's a serial killer. Right. But when you get into the brain, as a guy who's trying to get into that brain and start picking it apart, that's not what you see. You don't see a cartoon version. It's, it's not, you know... Yep. Uh, you know, the, the, the truth is most serial killers are alcoholics, drug addicts, live alone, they're hoarders, they're, you know, they're disgusting, uh, they're, you know, so that's the truth. Uh, mm-hmm. They're not polished guys like Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy, you know, dressing up and, you know, they're not the glorified Hollywood version of themselves, the most mm-hmm. of them, but they are all psychopaths. But that's a perfect thing for a vulnerable person, a waitress or someone working at a CVS who you can tell you can tell people who are lonely. Like you said, some of those people have V's on their head, whether or I mean, you and I are of sane mind, but we can spot out the lonely person. I mean, it's easy to do. So now you you shop at that place and then you just bring up those things. And next thing you know, you need a ride home and you're found in the woods. That's it. That's it. It's that one crack in the window they're looking for to exploit. When you talk to Raven, that I'm using quotation marks, your friend, which is not your friend, but um, also John Kelly is a profiler you work with on Dark Minds, and he has 13. So you have two serial killers, I mean, more or less in your back pocket that are helping you, which is fascinating in itself. But odd question. When you guys are on the phone with those guys, especially 13, you know, he answers, hello, John, and then he'll talk, talk, talk. That's it. 
is, is that really how it goes? Does he just hang up when he's done? 13, yes. He does. Yeah. Okay. It was like, that was his MO. I'm done. I'm tapped out. Uh, you know, sometimes he would just say, look, I, I, I don't know anymore. Bang. You know, or or he would say, I'm done, John. I, I, I can't give you anything else about this person. I'm done. Bang. Because it's, it's really their show. They know what they're doing. You know, they know they're on a show. Yeah, yeah, they're anonymous on the show, but they know they're on TV. They're mm-hmm. playing it, too. You know, they're playing it, you know. And, it, you know, what was interesting to me was how much they knew. You know, how much they really knew. I mean, if you look at some of the comments, viewers are like, ah, these serial kids, they don't know anything. They're not helping anything. Da, 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 da. You know, the social media trolls. Mm-hmm. Um, but they really did know lots of insight into these unsolved murders I was looking at. They gave really good insight and very well they should. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think I think 13, which we never said on the show, I think 13 is responsible for 18 murders. And they are the most graphic, vile murders. I, I, I would not even tell you uh, as, as a woman, as a, a human being, I would not even tell you how these murders took place. I, I could never do that. And yeah, what's interesting about moving from 13 to, to Raven, Happy Face, second, third season is, after the first season, the network said, we don't think 13 is interesting enough. Could you possibly find someone else? Really? That's, yeah, that's how Happy Face Raven steps into my life is I then write to like five different serial killers and, you know, I start talking to them and then I pick, I pick Happy Face because the network said 13 wasn't a good enough real serial killer. Really? That's TV, you know? Wow. Though I, I hate to use the word impressed. I truly do. But I was impressed at the one time when 13 was, he obviously had really thought about this murder you guys had brought to him because he started talking about the numbers of the names and the codes that it could be. And I thought he, he spent a little bit of time thinking about this. Yeah. Yeah. So did, uh, you know, Jesperson happy face. I mean, he, for every case that I had him look at, I mean, he would say some stuff on the show, but I would get 10, 11 letters hundreds of pages about the case as well in the mail, you know? Really? Yeah. He just Okay. So are they different? Is Raven and happy face? Those are different. No. Uh, well, Raven is the code name on the show for the two seasons because we couldn't name them. But part of dangerous ground, the book is me outing him, if you will, and saying, it is. okay, Raven is actually the happy face killer, Keith Jesperson. Yeah. Well, forgive me, Matthew, but I've not even had a month to catch up on years of work. Well, you've known a lot about my career. I really appreciate you knowing, actually knowing stuff about and asking great questions and being so well informed. Thank you for that. I mean, really. Well, I didn't want to show up being a dud because maybe now you'll come back on after I read another five books or something. Oh, unless you have to go. I want to know. Who was your, because not in, in all these books, you haven't talked to, like, you never talked to, in Beautifully Cruel, you never actually spoke to her, Tracy. No, no. Um, But in some of these, you are actually talking to, like, you talked to 
the one in Kelly, you talked to Kelly a lot and whatever. So out of all the ones that you've spoken to, I don't know. I don't know how to say this. I mean, they'll probably never listen to this, but is there one that you maybe liked the least? Like you, you just did not really like talking to them, but you knew you needed to do it uh, for your book. Or is that all of them? Or is there one that really stands out? Oh, no, that's a fair question. I would definitely say Kelly Cochran. I would definitely say her. She's just a vile human being who likes to destroy lives, likes to kill people, likes to laugh about it, joke about it, thinks it's funny. You know, as 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 I think it's in the, the Joker movie with Heath Ledger, it's like there's a line, I think Alfred has the line, it's like, you know, some people just like to light a match and watch the world burn and laugh about it, you know, and that's her, you know, mm-hmm. and I have no, no, absolute no feelings for those people at all. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, on the other hand, I, I, I'd say Jesperson as well, you know, Jesperson asked me once, he said, uh, he asked me this, this is a couple of years ago. He said, he said, if I end up getting the death penalty because of work that you've done and I'm sentenced to death. Will you be there for it? And I said, I said, not only will I be there for it, I said, I'll be sitting in the fucking front row. And then after you're dead, I'm going to leave there. I'm going to stop. I'm going to take a leak, wash my hands, walk out of there and drive away. And he said, huh? What are you talking about? I said, yeah, man. You killed eight women. You seem to forget about that. But you killed eight women, dude. You know? And you talk about these victims to me over and over again like it was their fault. Like they deserved it. And karma just put you guys together somehow. And it was your job to take their life. And you just don't get it. And you cannot be redeemed. You're a psychopath. There's no fixing you, you know? Did you think you'd be emotional about his death or, or if you would have some remorse because he was there? Yeah, he wanted he wanted me to say, yeah, yeah, I'd be there, but, I, you know, I wouldn't like it. It sure. would make me feel bad. But, yeah, it wouldn't make me feel bad at all. I mean, I don't want anybody to be put to death. So don't get me wrong. Don't, don't I don't, you know, but I'm not the one sentencing him. You know, the court's doing that and jurors are doing that. I'm just the one who's going to sit there and watch and say, oh, justice has been served. This is what the people chose, you know, right. and it's, and yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, look, some people don't deserve to be walking the planet. Now, either that's locked up or in the ground, but they don't deserve, they don't deserve the right to interact with people who are caring, loving people. Why is it so fucking hard to be nice to someone? You know what I mean? To, 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 to love somebody, to treat somebody like you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Why is that so hard? But, but there, there's maybe the catch-22 because how have they been treated? Well, that's, you know, that's a good question, but I'll answer that the way John Kelly answers that. John Kelly answers that with is like this. Matthew, Matthew, let's say, 
And I'm for listeners, I'm doing an impression of John. <laughs> and he's doing well. He's doing well. So he would say, Matthew, hundreds of thousands of children are abused in this world every year. Uh, and they have tough upbringings. They don't grow up to kill people. But he always finishes with, but on the other hand, every time we interview a serial killer who's honest, he tells us or she tells us she's been sexually abused. So there's a correlation. Of course there is. Of course there is. You know, but a psychopath is not going to change his or her spots. It's, 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 it's nurture and nature. But what I think is interesting, too, is that a lot of kids who have been abused, they still are looking for that validation from mom or dad. You're all, they're looking for it their whole lives. So that, that makes a good point. Treat people how you want to be treated. Maybe you weren't treated that way, but that's what you wanted. You didn't want to be treated poorly. Exactly. And, and also what I've noticed recently in the last number of years being single is that people are working out their issues in childhood, in relationships. It comes out in relationships. Yeah. You know? So if you were abused and you didn't fix that, because as adults, we have the opportunity to fix what happened to us, right? Exactly. To fix that shit, move on with our lives and have a good life. Right. Okay. Because as a child, you're insecure. All children are going to be insecure and that just comes with the territory. But when you get old enough, you, you should know better. And, and I should say here that of course, if you're mentally ill, severely mentally ill, and you can't, I understand that. That's a different thing. Yeah. What I'm talking about is a smart person who knows they've been abused yeah. and refuses to fix it. And then, you know, it all starts coming up in different relationships throughout their lives. And it, and it, and it, and it blows up in their face all the time. Okay, I mean, I kind of feel like inside of my head is a blender when you're talking. So I gotta, I gotta make some notes. Um, one thing I want to say, though, with Kelly, the pictures that you chose for that book were, they were good pictures for the book, not necessarily, you know, good pictures um, because of what it portrays. But there's one, people, you gotta read this book. You gotta get the book and look because it's so like she's arrested. She has a smirk on her face. She's being interrogated. She has a Coke in her hand and she's smiling. Another one, she's looking up at the, the police officer or investigator with a smirk on her. Just like, haha, you don't know what I've like. The looks on her face are killing me. That's Kelly. That is Kelly. Like, I mean, look at, I mean, I know no one else can see this, but look at her. Look at him like, haha, I know something you don't, you know what I mean? It's just ick. It's a, it's a cat and mouse. With her, it was a cat and mouse. But he played her. He played her hard. You know, he played her hard. And ultimately, he won. He won that battle. I mean, but you're right. I, I chose those. I could have put 10 more of her smiling in there. Um, crazy. And if you yeah. Google her, the pictures that you find. And then the pictures of, you have this picture of Laura Frizzle when they, when they found that skull. She didn't know Chris Reagan from Adam. And yet she's sitting there having a moment like, Matt, I know she's literally like, I found you. Like, I knew you were out here. I was going to find you. Doesn't have anything to do with it. And here you have her smirking in these pictures and her just like taking this moment. That, that tells you everything you need to know about really the types of people that I write about. 
Yes. And the, um, the differences of emotion from this page to this page, it's crazy. Really. It is, it and then you see all the people who work so hard. I mean, these two are, they're an adorable couple. I think I got to try to get her on, on the podcast because she. I, I, I will, uh, I'll hook you guys up with email. She's a beautiful human. And um, I, I, I really like that there was the love story at the end of this, but okay. So Kelly was your least favorite. What about writing? And when I say favorite, we all know that you don't like any of these crimes. You're just, you're just basically the messenger. You're telling the story. Which one was your favorite book to write? I would say I'll be watching you, uh, which is about a serial killer in Connecticut here. Um, not far from where I live. And the reason for that is the reason for that is it's just, it was just such an interesting story. I got close with the DA, uh, David Zagaya. I, I knew some of the detectives already from the state police. I really wanted to tell the story of the victim, Carmen Rodriguez, because I really wanted to tell her whole life story because unfortunately uh, minorities in true crime books and, and, and TV, when we talk true crime, are left out a lot for the, uh, what I call it in, in Dangerous Ground, the Natalie Holloway syndrome, where if you're blonde, blue-eyed from a wealthy family, you know, there's satellite trucks in your neighborhood if you go missing for, for three days. But, but there's minorities that go missing every day and there's no satellite trucks. So, so Carmen was a story that I really wanted to tell. I wanted to tell her story. It just turned out where the killer in this book is, um, really smart guy. And the last hundred pages of the book is kind of a cat and mouse between him and I. Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, I now have to buy all your books because I've exhausted the libraries around here, to be honest with you. So I've an hour and a half away. I have my family member. I had my sister-in-law who's pregnant. She went and picked out three of your books. And then she also got some Christmas book and some Christmas with the Royals or whatever. And she said, when she went to check out, the lady said, Oh, these are two quite different genres, (laughs) true crime and the Royals Christmas. So I I will get to that. The one I'm reading now is I'd kill for you. And something you said earlier about um, like some people are just born that way. I'm very freshly into that book. I just started it last night, but the guy Kyle's getting released and they say, He's going, he's going to kill someone. They flat out said he's going to do it. And they emancipate him and they cut him loose at 18 from the courtroom. And what does he do? What's the first thing he does? He throws his pills away, his psychiatric medications. He's schizophrenic. He throws the pills away and says, I don't need these. And then he meets someone who sees V on his head. Yeah. A vulnerable and victim who manipulates him. And oh, my God. Oh, my God. Now, what's interesting about that is, first of all, he gets released in September. From what I've seen, and I haven't read the whole book, but this crime takes place in December. So, I mean, he's not out for very long. But this girl who talks him into doing this had a boyfriend and she was like trying to coerce him to do it. And he was like, oh, she's just going to forget about it. There, There's a perfect example of if someone's talking to me about that, I'm thinking, um, no. That, that's not what's going to happen. So there's two different personalities right there. 
Kyle and whatever that other boyfriend's name was. But that that book is full of various personalities, various mental illnesses, various psychiatric diagnosis of sociopaths, psychopaths. It's it's all in there. So Um, how is it when you're talking to him? Because it seems like the conversations that you have with him, he doesn't. I mean, he was very honest with you. I mean, he was admitting. All, all of his issues. It's not like he was trying to hide anything from you. What was it like to talk, get in his brain? It was uh, very stressful talking to him because he he's very ADD and very jumpy, very all over the place, very street wise, very wanting to explain himself, explain himself, explain himself, explain himself. You know, so it was it was it was difficult to to get him to calm down a little bit and, and tell the story. And, yeah, I mean, he's a product of the system. He definitely is a product of the system. And the system knew he was going to kill somebody. And there's no, there was no sort of reinforcement or policy in place to prevent that from happening. Will he ever get, I don't, like I said, I'm new into it. Does he ever, will he ever get out of prison or is this, no? No, he'll never get out of prison. So the the foster mom that he had, that actually he really liked, do they have a relationship at all anymore or was that done with all this? As far as I know, they don't. Okay. Uh, They might now, it's been years, but uh, as far as I know, they don't. Hmm. I'm anxious to read that because I want to know what happens with that girl. And you know, I read a lot. My, I I think it's a good thing that my kids see me read. I have three boys and um, you know, sometimes I feel guilty because they're running around and I'm sitting there reading, but you know, how many parents are sitting there on their phone? Yeah. And I'm not on my phone. I'm reading a book and I constantly tell them how much I like to read. And I think that's, a, I, I'm just trying to make myself feel better that when I go home, I just sit and read all night. But. I mean, my daughter grew up watching me. I have four kids. My daughter, uh, uh, she's 21 now. She grew up watching me read, 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 read. And she reads the ton now. I think that's great. Yeah. So it definitely is something that, they're going to pick up. Absolutely. So this by far has been my longest podcast, but I want to be respectful of your time, but I do want to know one more thing before I let you go. How can you detach from this? Because you just said a little bit ago, there's no way I would tell you some of these murders, the things that you have heard and seen. I mean, you've seen all these crime pictures. You've seen all the blood. You've talked to the families. You're, you're like in a kind of a trauma tackle. You know, you're you're wrapped up in all of this. How how do you do this day after day and stay sane? Well, there was a period where I wasn't sane. Um, not I was not insane, but where I kind of well, I'm moving into uh, I've been moving into an area of my career where I'm trying to get away from the real dark graphic stuff of dark minds and that stuff. I still do some of that stuff, but I do it as an executive producer or I, I do it as a documentary where I film for a couple of weeks and I'm done with it. Right. Mm-hmm. So part of that is I just finished, um, I'm just finishing the copy edits now for I'm writing the book for uh, Deborah Newell, who is the victim in the Jane uh, in, in the dirty John story. So I'm writing her book for her. Right. Uh, I'm doing paper ghosts, which you could say is dark, yes, but it, there's there's a redemptive quality in it all, 
and that is to find these missing girls. Mm-hmm. So that drives me. That stuff really drives me, motivates me. I'm also uh, doing for my main job for the next year is going to be a weekly podcast for iHeart. So I'm going to be doing a weekly kind of a, the Joe Rogan of crime, true crime, if you will. It's going to be like that. Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, and I'm going to talk about all different sorts of things. The other thing is this, just it's coming out end of December. Uh, we thought we knew you. It's a case up in Utica, New York, which is, it's a poisoning case. So it's mainly about how this murder was solved. You know, it's dark, there's a murder, but it's not people getting eaten by their neighbor. You know, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so there's it's, it's a difference to it for me, you know, but I can't, I can't escape it now. It's who I am. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't sleep at night. So that's, <laughs> so there you go. And it has to be extremely hard to date when you have written all these books about these crazy women. There's got to be some red flags right away for you, right? Like, oh, no, I'm never going to talk to that gal again. It's interesting you say that. I could tell you a story offline that, that, <laughs> that, you, would, that you would say, how did that ever happen to you? So now, now that I'm out of that, that period where I was really in a down, down period, yeah, now I definitely see, I definitely pick off the red flags pretty yeah. easily. Yeah. Um, but sometimes as human beings... We don't want to see the red flags, right? Mm-hmm. We don't yep. want to see them. We choose not to see them. It's true. And so I got to be careful of that. That's why I always tell my husband, if something happens to me, there's two people that have to approve my um, replacement. And he goes, I don't know. I picked pretty good the first time. I don't think I need, I don't need anyone's help. And I said, but you do because you're going to be just jaded from me being gone. And he's like, oh, you're going to outlive me, which I will. But I think it's good to have outside influence because sometimes you can't, you can't see what you don't want to see. Yeah, and I do. I have a, a, a good friend of mine, and I call him my rabbi, Paul. He's written five books on personality type. He's, a, he's, 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 an old, he's a lot older than me, and, but, and he's this old Jewish guy who is you know, my rabbi. Uh, not my literal rabbi, because I'm not Jewish, I'm Christian. So there's the Christian Jewish relationship, which is great. And he's written a bunch of books on personality type. And he's uh, uh, an expert in that field. And he keeps me in check. Good. He keeps me in line. He, you know, he pushes back on all of that, Good. Uh, all that stuff. So yeah, and it was great, great talking to you. I mean, this was a great, great interview for me. So thank you for that. You're, you're excellent at what you do. And I appreciate you delving into the career like you did. And I'm, I mean, let's be real. I'm at the tip of the iceberg. (laughs) (laughs) I, and I'm one of those people that I like to start like with one and, and go through, which I think would have been interesting to see. I mean, obviously how you matured as a writer, because probably at the beginning, you didn't have anything funny, like talking about Houdini and Annie Oakley. So I look forward to uh, looking through those. But one thing I do want to know too is, did you come up with the name Paper Ghosts? I did. That's a great, like that. I've thought about that a lot. I I really, I really appreciate that because that is a good way, I think, to um, describe what you're, what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, and iHeartRadio loved it. Uh, they just said, that's perfect, you know? And, and you know, it, it, right away, people are like, paper ghosts. Oh, 
but I explained in the first episode, you know, the first perfect what, what it is, you know, and, and people get it immediately and yeah. it perfectly describes because I, you know, missing people to me are like spirits roaming the universe waiting for a place to land next to their family, you know, and that drives me, you know, um, mm-hmm. they're just roaming. They're, they're nowhere. You know, where are these people? And so I, I just thought that name was perfect. Yeah. I love the podcasting format. I mean, it's perfect. It's like, you know, I've done the books, I've done TV, and that's all coming together for this, you know, podcasting. It's really, really coming together. Yeah. I was really bummed when I was, when it was done because I'm like, well, now what do I listen to? And that's why I came across, you had done some interviews with some other people. And then one lady read one of your books. And so she, um, talked about the obsessed and so I and I wasn't going to listen to it because I thought no I want to read it and I thought no I want to hear what someone else has to say about it so um yeah I I you, you do very well at your job and it's fun to read I mean as fun as Trim Crank could be um and I found it interesting at the beginning of Targeted I think when you talk about how some people would criticize true crime writers and they would criticize the picture you have on the front and all that and it's interesting to think about it that way because as a true crime fan, I'm going to be honest with you, this is a nice, this is nice in the front, but that's not why I picked your book. So it's interesting to think like some people are judging you, you know, don't judge a book by its cover, right? A true, yeah, true crime went from like in the 80s, it was known as blood and guts, black and red covers. And it was like, it was sure. the like the romance. It was like true crime. Even today, though, you go to Barnes and Noble, you go to a bookstore, true crime is in the corner of the building on the bottom shelf by the toilet. That's where you find true crime. Not not at my local one. It was not there. It was in the middle and it, your books were not on the bottom shelf. So okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, I can see it. I mean, I can believe that has happened. I will trust you because you've been in it. But I, I have to give props to them because it was not. I guess what angers me more than anything, and maybe I'll end with this. I think I have another call to make. What angers me more than anything is like when a guy like Jeffrey Tubin, who now uh, we know uh, has done some weird stuff uh, online, James B. Stewart. So they write a bonafide true crime book, but the reviewers, they don't qualify it as true crime. They, they, you know, this, this is a book by this esteemed journalist. It's a narrative nonfiction book. No, nope, it's true crime. It's not narrative. It's true crime. But yet a journalist like myself will write a book similar, you know, and that, that's blood and guts. That belongs over there by the romance. That's what it's. It's the the judgment on who you are, you know, instead of the work. Right. Sure. Judge me on my work. You want to rip apart my work. Fine. You know, you have every right to right. But don't judge me on what I write, the cover, all of that, you know, that, that, that serves nobody. True. You know? yeah. But give me a call again. I'd be happy to help you out again and do this. This was great. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated.